As we come to the Word of God, uh, I would invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Our title, our message today is entitled, The Saving Judge. The Saving Judge. And I'll just tell you right now, this is going to be a two-parter. The Saving Judge. Our text is Genesis 6, 5 through 8. And this is the introduction to the account of God's judgment on the world by means of a global flood. Three weeks ago, we studied Genesis 3, where we saw that the Lord revealed himself as a gracious judge as he responded to the fall of man in the garden. Adam and Eve brought sin and death into the world, and while the Lord handed down consequences for their sin, his engagement with them and the consequences themselves were measured by extraordinary grace. In our text, we see God's judgment on the world without grace on those who receive it. Many millions of people lose their lives as the result of God's judgment, and only one man and his family will be saved. Well, this is the fifth message in our series, Behold Your God, and and we are way overdue for the reminder that when we study God, we need to remember who it is that we're studying. We are studying the eternal, infinite, holy, transcendent God. And there are times when we come face to face with the reality that we cannot comprehend him. The word comprehend means to to envelop, to wrap around. We cannot, as finite creatures, even though we're made in the image of God, we cannot fully wrap our mind around all of who God is. In fact, it's said this way, God is incomprehensible, but we can only comprehend him to the degree that he has revealed himself to us. Like a parent speaking to a young toddler, he speaks to us in ways that we can understand and which are true, but which sometimes are hard to understand. Because God is not like us, sometimes he tells us things about himself that raise questions of, well, if that's true, what about this? And if that's true, what about that? And God doesn't answer all of those questions to our satisfaction. There are a number of places in Scripture where the Lord brings us really to the edge of our ability to understand Him. And when we arrive there, we often feel that immediate discomfort of, ah, this is really hard to understand. Many times we're like Eve, who was discontent with what God had revealed to her. We want more, more knowledge, more understanding. And so we wrestle with hard passages and sometimes we can get discouraged. Well, my hope and my prayer for you today is that you would not leave discouraged, but that you would leave encouraged with the reality that God is greater than you. If we could understand Him completely, then that means he would be as finite as we are in our fallen condition. And that would be a frightening reality. That would not be a God who would be worthy of our worship. 
by the Spirit, though, we can understand all that God has revealed and we can give Him praise and glory for who He has revealed Himself to be. And then we can give Him praise and glory for the fact that He is even greater than we can understand. This is what Paul does when he says in Romans eleven thirty three, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. Zophar, one of the friends of Job, who misunderstood a lot about God, but he understood this rightly. He said in Job 11, can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. And so with this in mind, we come to our text with humility. If you're there in Genesis 6, follow along as I read verses 5 to 8. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We'll walk through this passage to see four aspects of God's character. Four aspects of God's character. Four aspects of God's character that he reveals in this text are, first of all, that the Lord sees. The Lord sees. We see that in verse 5. Secondly, the Lord sorrows. The Lord sorrows in verse 6. And then in verse 7, the Lord sentences. The Lord sentences. And then in verse 8, the Lord saves. We'll cover the first two today and the next two in two weeks, Lord willing. Let's begin with the first, the Lord sees. Look again at verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is God's evaluation of the condition of humanity who have been allowed to multiply on the earth and develop without interference from God. They are wicked to the center of their being. When we studied Genesis 3, we noted that those events took place a few weeks, perhaps a few months after the beginning of creation. Genesis 4 moves us forward a few decades where we saw the murder that was committed by one of Adam and Eve's sons, Cain. And then Genesis chapter 5 rushes us forward about 1,500 years in human history. And Genesis gives us, apart from the genealogies, very little information about those 1,500 years. At the end of Genesis 4, which gives us the genealogy of of Cain's descendants. There's a brief word given about the skills that they developed and accomplished. Some of them became musicians. Others were forgers of bronze and iron, and still others were keepers of livestock, it says. 
But what the Lord wants us to know as the most important fact of this period of human history, 1,500 years into the creation of man, is that they were wicked. They were wicked. What does this mean? Look down at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. They looked, God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. What God made and declared very good at the end of Genesis 1 has now been distorted and become corrupt. His original design in creation was subverted. He made man to, to be loving, and they hated. He made people to care for one another, and they harmed one another. He made people to represent him and to worship him, and they rejected and rebelled against him. Mankind overturned God's design in creation, and this was a pervasive reality. That's what it means when it says the wickedness of man was great on the earth. In fact, the Hebrew puts forward the word great to emphasize it. So it literally says great was the wickedness of man on the earth. This creature that God had made in his image to reflect his character and his glory so corrupted himself that instead of representing their creator, they represented everything that was true of the serpent who had deceived Eve. Well, not only did God look upon the earth and see the pervasiveness of the evil of man, he also looked into every heart and there he saw pervasive wickedness. Notice again what it says in verse 5. It says, The wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. Every intent, every purpose, every plan of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. That's worse than saying that his thoughts were evil, though that is true. This is saying that the soil of his heart from which the, the thoughts arose was corrupt. And if the soil was evil, then everything that grew from it was evil too. Mankind's purposes were opposed to God. Humanity's worldview ignored God completely. Man's plans were rebellious against God. And it wasn't just this way some of the time, on their bad days, when there were temptations or weaknesses. No, did you see that last word in the verse? It says his heart was only evil continually, literally all the day. There was never a moment, there was never a day where man's thoughts and his underlying intentions were evil. So mankind was corrupt, and as a result of that corruption, the world was filled with violence, it says in verse 11. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear that description, but don't think that the world was filled with mindless, rabid people on murderous rampages. If you and I lived in the days of Noah, I believe that we would see a society very similar to our own. Jesus said in Matthew 24 that the world at his second coming will be just like the world at the time of Noah. He said, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and 
They did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So it will be. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, from the perspective of the people on the earth, things were pretty good. There were parties and celebrations that were filled with music and laughter. Love was in the air and men and women were getting married to each other and enjoying families. Fields were being planted and harvested and good food was being eaten and enjoyed. People at that time were accomplished musicians. They could make ornate things from bronze and precious metals. That Noah and his sons were able to build such a massive ark implies that there was technological advancement that enabled them to do that. People lived for hundreds and hundreds of years, so the accumulation of knowledge and skill meant that they were advanced far beyond what we typically think. Cursed though they were by sin, they had remarkable intelligence and skills. And so if if you and I were to travel back to that time, we would see and be amazed. And we might say, oh, sure, there's some violence. There's some bad parts in town, dangerous areas, but there's so much good. But the Lord saw and the Lord said that man is evil. He looked at the heart. And the heart of man in that day was com- had completely rejected their creator. They enjoyed his gifts of intelligence and strength and natural resources, but instead of worshiping God and living for his glory, they subverted the very purpose for which they were made. Left to ourselves, that's that's what we do as human beings under the curse of sin. Because we are corrupt, we corrupt everything that we touch. There is nothing good that we do that remains unstained by sin. All the wonderful technological and communication advancement that has innumerable benefits is quickly used for promoting immorality and spreading rebellion and promoting violence. As good as surgical advancement is for those who need their bodies put back together, it's used to replace healthy reproductive organs for ones that don't work. The potter made us, and in the heat of our sin, we distorted his good design And we celebrate it. Just look around. Here we are at the end of Pride Month. Some of you have been inundated every single day at your work by expressions of rebellion against God. And you can't escape it. It's it's in the workplace. It's in the grocery store. It's at the gas station. It's, of course, plastered all over media and entertainment. And Pride Month is just one issue. There are are many who would disagree and and resist that ideology, but at the very same time, they would affirm a woman's right to abortion. No matter how much good you see in society or I see in society, God looks at the heart and what He sees is wickedness. The Lord sees. In studying this, I was surprised to see how seldom that language is used in the Scripture. Of course, God is omnipresent, which means that He is personally present at every place in space. And so God, in that sense, sees everything. He's aware of everything. Hebrews 4.13 says that no creature is hidden from His sight, 
So when the Bible says that the Lord saw or that God saw, it intends to emphasize something about God. Namely, that He not only sees, but He takes notice. Things not only flash before His eyes, but He directs His gaze and He focuses for the purpose of responding. The Lord saw that Leah was unloved by Jacob and He opened up her womb. When Israel was oppressed in Egypt, Exodus 2.25 says, God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. And in taking notice of them, he sent Moses to deliver them from Egypt. Jonah preached uh, the proclamation of God's judgment on the city of Nineveh and God saw their deeds of repentance and he turned away his wrath. Though God is above And outside of creation, he is not aloof. He is not uninvolved. He he does not sit in heaven watching us for the purpose of entertainment. No, he looks and he sees and he responds. What was his response to what he saw in the heart of man? That's the next aspect of God's character. The Lord sorrows. The Lord sorrows. When the Lord saw the wickedness of man on the earth and the evil of man's heart, what came out of God's heart was sorrow and grief. Look at verse 6. The Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth and and He was grieved in His heart. Right here, beloved, we are standing on the the precipice of God's incomprehensibility. We're about to wade into some deep waters of God's nature that should cause us to humbly acknowledge the fact that He is greater than we can understand. And this is a dangerous ledge from which some have fallen to their own eternal destruction. What do I mean by that? Some have looked at this verse and said, you see, right here, we see that God didn't know what was going to happen. God didn't know the future. God did not expect mankind to be so sinful. So, they say, God changed His mind. And He changed His plan. Now, in saying such things, people have rejected the God of the Bible and made a God in their own image. This verse may sound simple, but there is more complexity here than meets the eye. One one reason for that complexity is because what the Lord says about Himself right here in this verse seems to contradict what else He says in other places. In fact, you can listen or you can turn with me over to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15, which is another place where the Lord expresses sorrow. 1 Samuel 15 is an occasion where King Saul, the first king of Israel, sins by disobeying a clear and direct command from God. Remember, uh, Israel rejected God as their king, and so he granted their request for a human king to be appointed over them, and he himself is the one who appointed Saul to be king. But because of Saul's disobedience, It says in 1 Samuel 15, verse 10, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I 
regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. After this, Samuel goes to confront Saul and uh, let him know that God knows that he has disobeyed. And furthermore, tell him that God has now rejected him as king. And Saul responds by begging for forgiveness from Samuel, hoping that God will change his mind so he can hang on to the throne of Israel. But when he asks that, look at verse 28 and 29. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. For he is not a man that he should change his mind. The word translated, the Hebrew word translated change his mind is the same word which is translated regret in verse 11, which is the same word which is translated sorry in Genesis 6, 6 in our text. Do you see the problem? Isn't God doing in verse 28, changing the king of Israel, exactly what verse 29 says God does not do? Change his mind. Or coming back to Genesis chapter 6, as we see in verse 7, God is going to wipe out the entire human population, and it seems as though he's undoing what he had done in creation. How is that not an act of God changing his mind? Well, this is where unbelievers say, Aha! See there, you admit it. There's a contradiction in the Bible. And that's where believers say, Lord, I believe. Help me to understand. Beloved, what God is revealing him uh, God is revealing Himself to us and He deserves our best efforts by His Spirit to understand what He is saying. And so stick with me and ask God to help you glorify Him with your mind over these next few minutes. When we run into a passage like this of verse 6 that challenges our thinking, we have to pull together the relevant teaching of Scripture to put guardrails on our interpretation. So, Let's begin by affirming some things that are crystal clear in Scripture that are true about God that are vital to our understanding of this passage. Number one, God is omniscient. God is omniscient, meaning He knows all things past, present, and future. He knows all things actual and all things possible. He's omniscient. Isaiah 46 verse 10 says that the Lord declares the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things which have not been done. So that's saying he knows the future. On a more personal level, Psalm 139 verses 1 to 4 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even, even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. So that means that God knows everything in the present. Other passages, of course, would affirm that God knows everything in the past. But 
God knows all things from beginning to end. He knows all of the minute details of our life. Therefore, God never learns anything. God never grows in understanding. He cannot be surprised. He knows everything. Second thing we need to say is that God is omnipresent. As I said earlier, that means He is personally present at every point in space. He's omnipresent. There is nowhere you can go where God is not there. You cannot escape Him or hide from Him, and no one can steal you away from His presence. It says in Psalm 139 again, verses 7 to 10, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I, if I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. Or Jeremiah, in a, in a much larger sense, says in Jeremiah 23, verse 24, Can a man hide himself in hiding places so that I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? So not only can not God not be surprised because He knows everything, He also can't be surprised because He's everywhere and nothing can be done in a way that's hidden from His sight. He is personally present everywhere. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. Number three, God is sovereign. God is sovereign, which not only means that He stands as King of kings and ruler over all, but more than that, He is in active control of everything that takes place. Nothing happens apart from His will. Ephesians 1.11 says, He works all things according to the counsel of of his will. Isaiah 45 says, I am the Lord. There is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does these things. So God there takes responsibility for everything that happens and no one can thwart his plans. He says in Isaiah 46, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God is sovereign. God is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is sovereign. Fourth, He is immutable. Immutable, which means He does not change. Immutable. He does not change. God cannot learn. He cannot grow. He is perfect. Were He to change in any way, that would imply that there's some perfection in Him. The Lord says of Himself in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. James 1.17 says that God is the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, meaning He does not change. His nature doesn't change. His character doesn't change. His plans and His purposes don't change. He is immutable. Add to this, God is perfect love, perfect justice, perfect grace, perfect goodness. In all that He is, He is in perfection. He is true and faithful, and therefore all that He does is good and right and perfect. He can do no wrong. He cannot make mistakes. Psalm 119 says, you are good and do good. Psalm 89 verse 14 says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. God, wherever to do anything wrong or anything unjust, His throne would crumble. We could add to those passages hundreds 
of passages that affirm God's holiness and God's perfection. God does nothing rashly. God does nothing ignorantly or randomly or spontaneously. All that God does is consistent with His holy, perfect character and in light of His wise omniscience. Okay, since God is omniscient, omnipresent, sovereign, immutable, and perfect in all of His ways, how is it possible for Him to look on what He's done, make man on the earth, and be sorry? If God cannot change His mind, what does it mean that God regretted, as it says in the ESV and other translations? Well, let's consider the word itself, nachem in the Hebrew. It's used over a hundred times in the, New, in the Old Testament, and more than half of the time it means to comfort or to console, a very different nuance or meaning, such as when Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. But it's also translated as to relent or to change, to be sorry, to regret, even to repent. All of those have a lot of overlap in their nuances. So when a word has a kind of a wide uh, range of possible meanings, how do we decide what it means here? Well, the answer is context. The sentence in which a word is used always is the final arbiter as to what it actually means, how the author intends it to be understood. And so clearly, as we think about this verse, it cannot mean that God was comforted that he had made man on the earth in light of their wickedness. That makes no sense at all. And because of the overwhelming revelation of God, we, we can't say anything. We can't use a word that conveys the idea that somehow God has changed his mind. And so I believe that the New American Standard translators made the right decision here to translate this as sorry, to reflect God's disposition toward his decision. Again, if we say, as some translations do, that God regretted his decision, that would possibly convey the idea that he had changed his mind about whether he should have made man on the earth. And that would be both a contradiction of Scripture and of the character and mind of God. And so, we see here that when God decides to act, he does so out of his perfect knowledge and character, and all that he does is right he never makes a mistake, but listen carefully. This does not mean that every decision that God makes is a happy one. Because God loves justice and God loves mercy, He can both delight and sorrow over the exercise of His justice. Ezekiel 18 verse 23 says, Do I not, excuse me, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that they should turn and repent from his ways and live? In other words, God says that even though it is just and right for judgment to come upon the wicked, he would prefer, his, the heart of God would prefer that he would repent so that God could extend mercy. And so the emphasis there is on God's love of mercy. On the other hand, consider Isaiah 53 verse 10 where it says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, the Messiah, putting him to grief. 
if he would render himself as a guilt offering. God the Father delights in the death of his Son because the Son atoned for sin. He satisfied the justice of God. There, the emphasis is on God's love for justice. God is able to have these complex mix of emotions perfectly. And as image bearers, we experience this as well, though imperfectly. When a member of Congress votes to declare war, and yet they have a son or a daughter who they know is going to be sent into harm's way as a result of that decision. They can be confident in the rightness and the justice of that decision while still sorrowing over the implications of it. When a parent must hand down significant consequences to uh, their child for destructive behavior, they, they know it will cause their child grief, but they do what is good and right even if it has sorrowful impact on their soul. Four years ago, when I worked at Grace to You, there was an employee who confessed to wrongdoing and having covered it up for years. And it was necessary in that situation for that employee to be fired. But because he confessed and repented, there was both joy in his repentance, but sorrow over the fact that he had to be let go. And so if we as fallen and finite creatures as we are, yet made in God's image, can make decisions that we know are right, yet are filled with sorrow, how much more can our Heavenly Father, who is perfect love and perfect compassion and perfect justice, do the same? You see, the plan of redemption that God would save sinners was established before the world began, Scripture says. Before there was dirt from which man would be made, God determined to make man knowing that mankind would become corrupt and wicked. So why did he do it? Well, to put the fullness of his glory on display. Notice that it says here in verse 6, or excuse me, that when you look at verse 6, there are no quotation marks. This is not something that the Lord said to Noah or anybody else in his time. This is a sentence which reveals God's heart toward corrupt humanity. And it was inspired by the Holy Spirit for Moses to write down so that people over the last 3,500 years would know something about God. Now, what does God want us to know in sorrowing over sin? Well, first of all, we can say he wants us to know that God hates sin. God hates it. Proverbs 6, 16-19 says, There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Pride, deception, murder, malice, violence, injustice, division. God hates these things. They're not the only things that God hates, but these are partic- these in particular violate God's character and are the opposite of what He has designed for us to live as His image bearers. So God hates them. When God sorrows over the wickedness of man, 
we not only learn that God hates sin, but he also is communicating to us that he loves people. He loves people. God doesn't love everyone the same way, but he does have a universal love for those who are made in his image. He he cares about every soul. That's why scripture says that God would rather that the wicked would repent than that God would judge them for their sin. God is love, Scripture says, and while God demonstrates His love uniquely toward those whom He saves, Scripture also says that God loves His enemies, those whom He does not save. When God made man on the earth and man became wicked and corrupt, God did not change His mind about whether He should have made man. But his heart of love and compassion grieved over their sin. His plan, which involved the creation of mankind, was a good and perfect plan. But it also involved decisions that while being consistent with God's goodness and perfection, yet they caused sorrow in his heart. We see this dynamic in Matthew chapter 23 where after Jesus pronounced a series of woes or judgments on the Pharisees, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Jesus there reflects the heart of God in expressing sorrow over the wickedness of Israel that led to their righteous punishment from God. And yet Romans 11 teaches us that in God's perfect and eternal plan, it was the rejection of Israel that was the path to salvation for Gentiles. Now there is great mystery in all of this. It doesn't take much thinking about the plan of God to to raise questions in your mind about what is going on in the mind of God, why he does what he does. And God doesn't answer those questions to our satisfaction. But again, God reveals himself truly, even if his revelation raises questions that it doesn't answer. God's judgments in particular raise such questions. People don't typically ask, why does God save people? They assume that. And so it's in the context of warnings of judgment that we read this in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children so that we might do the works of this law forever. We have more than sufficient and understandable revelation from God to know that He is glorious and wise and good. And therefore, we can worship Him and live for Him. As we draw to a close, one of the reasons people struggle with God's perspective and God's judgment is because they don't have, we don't have His perspective. And you know what? That is a mercy from God. It's a mercy of God that you and I are deaf to the cacophony of noise produced by the wickedness in the world. 
We are blind to the innumerable acts of violence that take place on the earth every second of every day. If for one second God tuned our ears to hear the evil in the world, we would scream for God's justice to fall. If we could capture in one moment the scenes of evil done throughout the world by 8 billion people, our bodies couldn't handle the trauma of such knowledge. But God is not deaf or blind to those things. God sees and he hears the wickedness and evil and suffering that takes place every day. So it's no surprise that it grieves his heart. If God is perfect love and if God is perfect compassion and perfectly merciful, every second of every day, his very being is being assaulted by what takes place on the earth. So we should be more shocked and in disbelief at the mercy of God, extended over 1,500 years before the flood and about 4,000 years since the flood. We should be more shocked at his mercy than by his long overdue justice. To put it simply, if we saw what God sees and if we heard what God hears and we had the power that God has, the earth would not last very long. But wonder of wonders, it does. And it is because God's plan and God's purpose is to ultimately put the full panoply of his character on display by saving sinners like you and like me. Now, next time we'll see both God's sentence on mankind and his salvation. But I want you to leave this morning knowing that this God who sees and sorrows is the God who sent Jesus Christ into the world to take sin upon himself and receive the justice that was due to sinners. God did not simply act from heaven to judge. He stepped into our world to experience life on this planet and save rebels like you and me. And Jesus, who, who is God in the flesh, lived a life of perfect righteousness before God and man, and yet he was crucified by evil men. And on that cross, Scripture says, he who did not know sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And that means that as sorrowful as it was, God was pleased to treat Jesus as if he had lived your life and my life. And so that he could treat you as if we had lived his perfect life. And in rising from the dead, Jesus declared victory over sin, and he offers salvation to all who would put their trust in him. And so if you have not believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, believe in him now, and you will be saved from the judgment of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we've just barely dipped our toes into what is here. And we feel the weight of it. We feel that reality that there, there is more to you than, than we can understand. And we thank you for that, Lord, because so often we, we think so, so trivially, trivially of you. We think so lightly. We take for granted your, 
love and your grace and your mercy. And we, we assume that that's what it always is and that's what it always ought to be. And we forget that you are just. Lord, forgive us if we have ever questioned your justice. Lord, cause us to be in awe of you. That even though you see all the evil in this world, not just the evil that takes place in any given second, but the evil that has taken place throughout the last 6,000 years, and yet you have been merciful beyond comprehension. And thank you that your mercy has come to us. And may it be extended to those in this room who do not know you yet. Would they come to know you as the glorious God who sorrows over sin to such a degree that he would give of himself to save sinners. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.